The contents of the TPR podcast and the opinions expressed therein are solely for informational purposes and do not constitute financial, investment, or legal advice. All right. Thank you for joining us and welcome today to this episode of the Tron Policy Report. Uh, From time to time, we like to host the Tron Policy Report. We bring together experts from around the industry to discuss the ever-evolving topic of regulation in the crypto markets. Um, we know this is always a, you know, interesting and, and rapidly evolving uh, topic. So we always want to stay on top of it and be bringing to our community um, the new and interesting ideas of experts from around, uh, really from around the world. Uh, my name is Dave Yarnak. I'm the ecosystem development leader at Trondow. And with me today, uh, I think we have a very uh, special guest, and I'm excited about this podcast. Uh, His name is Mike Castiglione. Um, Now, Mike is highly qualified to discuss the topic of crypto regulation. So uh, a bit about his background. Following a double major of international relations and economics at Michigan State, he went on to receive his master's of public affairs at Princeton, and then He spent nearly 15 years at an organization you might have heard of called the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA. So now Mike is the Director of Regulatory Affairs and Digital Assets at Aventus. And at Aventus, he focuses on financial financial compliance and brings innovative tools uh, to a very uh, global audience to help them deal with uh, such topics as fraud. So welcome, Mike. Great to be here, Dave. Sure. Yeah, today uh, I thought we'd talk about uh, the recent paper by IOSCO. They made a, they released a paper in May, and they made about eighteen policy recommendations in that paper. And I think it's uh, I think it's relative one because it didn't get very much press, um, or at least the press I thought maybe it deserved around the time it was published. Um, and I want to focus on that a bit because it may have implications down the road for what we see globally um, as uh, you know, countries start adopting uh, greater regulation, putting in really more guardrails around the crypto industry um, as it evolves. So, Mike, first, uh, what is IOSCO and why is it relevant? Yeah, IOSCO is an international body that brings together securities regulators. Uh, from really uh, all countries, uh, multiple jurisdictions. I think they, uh, uh, they they say that they cover 95% of the world security markets. So it is a forum, an international forum, where uh, securities regulators gather and they create standards. Um, and the idea is that that forum creates standards and then they encourage the national governments of the members to adopt those standards. Um, so IOSCO okay. includes the US. So the CFTC and SEC are members of IOSCO. Mm-hmm. Um, the EU, European regulators, uh, Asian regulators like Singapore, Hong Kong, and China China's a member as well. Uh, so these are the, the, the big regulators that matter when it comes to um, financial securities. Now, the the their paper or their recommendations focuses on crypto asset service providers, what they refer to as CASPs. So could you define for us what is what exactly is a crypto asset service provider? Maybe provide some examples. 
Yeah, CASP, it, as defined by IOSCO and other organizations, are just very similar to um, what the AML world would label a VASP, Virtual Asset Service Provider. Um, okay. So it's, it's just, a, just a shift of, of terminology. Um, in, in essence, it is a firm that provides, um, that, that al allows their clients to trade, to make payments with digital assets in in any form that's at a high level. It can include um, crypto exchanges, like the big mm -hmm. names that we, we know. Um, it can include trading firms that are trading for clients, um, could be uh, money service providers, could be custodians. So it, it, it's defined uh, rather broadly. CASPs also come up in the EU's new uh, law called MECA. In use new? What? Yeah, oh, the European Union's new uh, law. So okay. CASP is a term that comes up in, in, in that. MECA. Okay. In MECA as well. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yes. So when IOSCO comes out with this recommendation, it's really um, saying, you know, these, uh, these bodies, all our members, we got together, we came up with some ideas, and this is what we're thinking of implementing in these various regulatory bodies around the world. Exactly. That accurate. Exactly. Yeah, that's okay. that's accurate. Yeah, yeah. In a, in a way, um, you know, even though IOSCO and many other international standard-setting bodies don't have direct authority to implement laws or enforce laws, they are very helpful helpful in a in a diplomatic sense, international um, sense, to kind of smooth the way for national governments to make decisions. So if you can, you can imagine a yeah. jurisdiction who's debating what to do with this new emerging asset class called crypto, and IOSCO has a lot of heft. Uh, so it's much easier. You, you kind of reduce the policymaking risk uh, and reluctance for national government once IOSCO kind of blesses uh, a set of recommendations. So this particular paper, yeah. it, is, it is a policy recommendation. It's a, it's a policy proposal. Uh, they are taking um, comments. Comments are due the end of July. Yeah. And their idea is to finish or publish their, their final report by the end of the year. Mm -hmm. um, and again, this will be something in the ether that national governments can kind of pull onto. Uh, one significance of, of this particular report, I mean, I, I personally feel that, you know, if, if you want a high level sense of where regulators are going globally regarding crypto, like this is a great place to start because it, it just fills many of the themes that governments across the globe are, are dealing with. It includes conflicts of interests, um, how to handle orders for crypto trading, it handles disclosures for uh, CASPs and also disclosures for crypto issuers. It mm -hmm. deals with custody and cyber risk. And for Aventus, what's important to us is it, it also handles market manipulation and how to really pull the lessons and the patterns that we see in other asset classes to crypto and have a, kind of a structure of how to reduce the risk of price manipulation and other market abuse. Okay. Yeah. I, I In going through the, the proposals, I thought they were all fairly common sense uh, for the most part, things that industry probably needs to evolve. But one thing that kind of struck me is that in the first recommendation, they say the regulatory approach should seek to achieve regulatory outcomes for investor protection and market integrity that are the same as or consistent with 
those that are required in traditional financial markets, right? So, okay, that's fine, but but the implication of that or what that infers is that crypto assets should be regulated as securities, right? And that's very uh, that's very up in the air at this point. Would you agree? Yeah, it, I mean it. It is a it is a um, place for securities regulators to come together. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that the the debate whether crypto or a particular token is security commodity is um, it gets a lot more attention in the U.S. Um, because okay. because the U.S. has two separate uh, regulators based on kind of historical kind of accident and the way this legislation kind of came piecemeal from the 30s onward. Um, many other jurisdictions have one regulator that will oversee all financial asset classes, whether it's a commodity or a derivative or, or a traditional security like a stock. So for Let's example, S Singapore has one regulator. Um, or and they monitor all asset classes. Exactly. The UK has the uh, so securities FCA. and non-securities. Exactly. Securities and commodities okay. and, and other financial. Right. Exactly. Um, so really, the U.S. is the only country where this is an issue, where this whole securities classification is an issue. It is. It is disproportionately important in the United States because mm -hmm. of this, the, the the overlay jurisdictional kind of debate that's that's happening. And also the. Um, um, yeah, the, 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 the rules that kind of flow from that. Uh, so, okay. so one, so one situation where we have in the, in the United States is, um, you know, if you're, if you're a security, certainly you go under the SEC and an SRO called FINRA. If you're a, if you're a derivative, like a futures or an option, you fall under the, the CFTC. But right now the United States, it's like, uh, this is the problem that so many people have identified is that there, there's the gap and then the gap is if you're a commodity on uh, um, what's called the spot market or the cash market. Um, yeah. The CFTC has authority to prosecute and find fraud, but only after the fact. Um, so we're not in a situation yet in the United States where there's a, a regulator that can make sure firms have the right controls in place before um, doing business in the commodity spot market. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, so there's a lot going on there, but so just one thing that comes to mind is that right now with so many governments around the world looking at CBDCs and stable coins, uh, how would this impact the issuance of a CBDC? Does the government then become a CASP? Hmm. Uh, this, re this particular report doesn't touch on CBDCs directly. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, I see the where, where the CBDC debate is right now is, is mm -hmm. more like R&D and experimentation. And, um, you know, uh, I guess governments, one, debating, do they have the capacity to pull it off? And that's mm -hmm. debatable uh, and very true. Right. And then what's, what are the technical specifications, the kind of the talent, the engineering kind of backbone you need for that. Mm -hmm. um, and then too, what, whether it's desirable um, and, and whether 
you know, it fits within, um, you know, the, the national policy for national, for competitiveness and free markets for centralized control. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other overlay is kind of like the debate about um, civil liberties and whether it is a, a step or the step toward uh, too much uh, governmental financial control. Right. Yeah, there, there are many issues with CBDCs. I, I certainly don't disagree with that. And, um, you know, I'm not here to advocate one way or the other for CBDCs. But according to this paper and based on some definitions of what might be considered to be a crypto asset service provider, uh, I think that it's possible that governments would fall under the category or classification of being a crypto asset service provider. And in which case um, that would mean that they would have to uh, adhere to some of the, at least some of these regulations, um, which, uh, you know, that's more questionable whether they would want to or not. Um, a different way to go might be, um, you know, how, how this would impact stable coins. Because right now in the market, I think we are seeing, well, we're definitely seeing the proliferation and adoption of stable coins, right? They're, I think they're becoming um, more used for a variety of um, purposes. You know, getting getting much more common in payments. And do, my question is that does um, or do stable coin issuers then fall under uh, the CASP umbrella? Yeah, they. They certainly might fall under the CASP umbrella. Um, this is, yeah, th this is the, uh, this is where you'd have to go jurisdiction by jurisdiction and okay. and really understand um, like the the requirements um, and you know what you need to do to comply. Obviously, in the United States right now, it's state by state or money transmitter licenses. In Europe, uh, the new law. Mika is trying to um, create a, a broader umbrella and um, allow, allow stablecoin providers to you know, passport their license across all member states. Um, and then uh, really interesting uh, countries like Singapore are ex experimenting, putting, you know, putting um, you know, public sector dollars in experimenting with uh, innovative products like CBDCs or stable coins or ways to process cross-border payments. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is going to be interesting to evolve. And, and to be clear that this is, this doesn't cover DeFi. That comes later this year. Um, so we'll see, maybe there's more color on DeFi um, or, uh, or more color on stable coins as the DeFi paper comes out and those recommendations come out. Yeah. Uh, the interesting thing see. about, yeah. The interesting thing about, um, yeah, the DeFi report. So the the DeFi report is being um, is being written. I guess we expect it later this summer. Uh, okay. The task the task force that's writing that report is chaired by the SEC. So we can kind of anticipate a certain spin or flavor oh, out of that out of that report. Um, and and it, this is to say that when you look at international discussions about crypto regulation. You know, my, my sense is that there is a global consensus emerging. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly there are 
very complex technical issues regarding like implementation, the security commodity uh, debate in the US. Mm -hmm. DeFi is gonna be uh, uh, complex because it's really, it's like a, like a new thing. It's a new new way of transacting and, and right. trading. Um, but, you know, regulators globally, including the CFTC and SEC are involved in really detailed conversations through um, like IOSCO and, and other bodies. And some of the emerging pieces of crypto regulation that I think are falling under this consensus is certainly the, the, the AML, you know, counter financial uh, terror financing pieces. Yeah. Um, and also um, a, a robust regime to monitor for market manipulation and to take steps to counter market manipulation. I, I, see, I see this piece in Mika, which is mm -hmm. on the books and will be fully uh, inf uh, enforceable by the end of 2024. Uh, Singapore, Hong Kong are, are in injecting uh, market manipulation, anti-market abuse rules mm -hmm. and checks um, into, uh, into their policy framework. The UK, the UK's most recent policy uh, proposal um, is talking a lot about how to basically monitor for market abuse in a way that is very consistent with current like other asset classes. So yeah, big okay. picture, big picture. This is, um, there are big pieces coming together, um, that represent a global consensus of, um, you know, how do you, how do you regulate, how do you create guardrails around this industry? Yeah. I think that's really interesting. Is there one country that you would say is further ahead than the rest and might be leading the way? I mean, it's hard to keep score for yeah. on, on legislation or, or economic policy like this. Um, but in terms of like stating objective facts, I mean, the EU has passed a comprehensive law. Yeah. Um, the UK is, is debating has, has a policy pro proposal and is debating this. Mm -hmm. um, and then what, again, really interesting jurisdictions like Singapore, um, yeah. where you have a regulator that is certainly against, cautious against retail customers trading in crypto, uh, but are they're bullish in terms of the underlying blockchain technology and transforming yeah. the financial infrastructure. Yeah, that's that's great. We are seeing, you know, I, I think we're seeing a great deal of adoption come out of Asia. Um, Europe, what's interesting about Europe, they, they are leading or a leader in developing, um, you know, the regulation framework, but adoption, crypto adoption overall by the population, um, certainly in the UK, and I think throughout the EU is relatively low. So we'll have to see how, and that might be a cultural issue. It could be a variety of issues, but we'll have to see how that um, plays out over the next few years. If, if greater regulation does lead to an acceleration of, um, you know, adoption by the broader population. Yeah, and I'm, um, I'm, in, I'm in Washington, D.C. and, and uh, go to Capitol Hill, talk to government officials uh, uh -huh. periodically. And something that is being raised uh, more often, especially this year, is the national security and U.S. competitiveness argument, uh, really regarding crypto and and 
the, the, the broad trend, especially this year is um, many other jurisdictions that are not leading in financial innovation right now, see crypto as an opportunity to leapfrog yeah. uh, and, and are placing, you know, placing bets or, or you know, placing hedged cautious bets. They're not all in, right? You know, mm-hmm. again, crypto is still an emerging technology. It's, it's very amorphous. Just understand what world beating industries or companies might emerge from it. There's a debate on how early it is still in terms of a world changing um, technology. But many of these countries, you know, see this as a moment to take on a leadership role. Uh, And the leadership role could have, um, you know, positive effects for them in terms of their, their, their ability to track investments, um, their, their role as a financial innovator, and also the future of the internet and whether they will, whether investing in foundational blockchain technology will Help them attract the talent that yeah. can have a positive spillover effect to um, to other industries. So, you know, with, with my national security background, you know, I think a lot about the kind of the direct and indirect short-term and long-term ramifications of emerging technology. It's one of the yeah one of one of my responsibilities that I had uh, at the CIA. Yeah, it's um, really and, interesting. Um... I think one of the I know one of the cities that we see really trying to push ahead and I think is doing a good job is Paris, right? And you see it Paris, London, uh, Berlin, you know, kind of becoming these European hubs, if you can have multiple hubs um, for crypto um, in Europe. You know, is that, you know, I think for Paris, it's probably the biggest deal because they're, they seem to be making the biggest push, at least, you know, they've announced it. Um, and it seems to be working. So yeah. is that, you know, kind I mean, of what U- you're seeing? Yeah, this idea, the UK also said they want to be a hub. Um, yeah. Middle East, you know, the UAE, both mm-hmm. Abu Dhabi and Dubai are, um, you know, making moves, carving out um, unique regulators to look at crypto and to attract attract talent and business. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because one, one way to think about it is... Um, you know the you know the the tech excitement that comes with kind of experimenting or being early in a, a new technology um, has has like a, a logic in its own and it could lead to um, unexpected gains right like you, you have to if you if you can create an ecosystem that channels some energy channels some of that entrepreneurial startup energy you can create a, a virtuous cycle in terms of attracting the next round. Exactly. Uh, of investment and, and entrepreneurial spirit. Um, and then, um, you know, that can have, you know, like that, again, the early seed of, of, of attracting energized entrepreneurs can, can really grow in unexpected ways and have profound um, ramifications for a country's economy, for a country's resiliency and its own self-sufficiency. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're exactly right about that. This, this is giving this whole situation of crypto and blockchain, it's really providing this and relative as it relates to what's happening in the U S and the position the U S has taken is that it's providing these countries 
that you know weren't necessarily huge financial players, although certainly London is, but it's giving them the opportunity to almost become the next Silicon Valley slash you know Manhattan to where they have this innovative culture with startups as well as you know be a center of uh, these modern financial services or the next generation of financial services. Um, and I think that's really, it's really something that's being overlooked. And as it relates to the IOSCO, I think regulation and adoption of regulations, uh, the faster it can be done, really facilitates that that growth and that potential, right? So, so from that aspect, what you're saying is exactly right, that it's uh, we really have to watch this because it could lead to a shift in the uh, power centers of financial services. Yeah, just one one historical analogy. Um, I I grew up in the Detroit area, uh, okay. so absolutely keen on the history of the automobile, um, and you know we, we kind of all know the story. It went from you know hundreds of thousands of startups consolidated eventually into a handful, a big th- you know the big three, um, yeah, in, to the nineteen fifties. But the the interesting story of the evolution of the emerging tech called the automobile horseless carriage was that in the early 1900s, like automobiles were criticized and they were, they were criticized for being useless. They were criticized for being dangerous. And, you know, those critics thought like only like thrill seekers and the wealthy wanted automobiles. And the odd thing is like all those criticisms were, were accurate at the time. But what the critics failed to, to predict is that the auto industry of the 1900s it, you know, does not equal the auto industry of the 1940s, but you need the 1900s version to get to the 1940s. Um, yeah. So, like, so in terms of like thinking about the national security and, and U.S. competitiveness angle of this, you know, you know what happened in 1941, and basically the U.S. entered World War II, and the auto industry that just a generation ago was criticized for being useless and you know aimless and dangerous you know, actually became the foundation of the arsenal of democracy. Uh, you mm-hmm. had people like uh, William Knudsen, who was former head of GM, you know, get tapped by FDR to lead industrial production. And, you know, it's it's not an overstatement that, you know, this, this, you know, once criticized industry helped beat the Nazis. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, you can kind of think of, like, an alternative universe and, and you know, parallel to what we're seeing today is like, what if what if the critics of the auto industry won in the 1900s and kind of shaped U.S. policy in a more disadvantaged disadvantages way? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we kind of know how that would play out because the so the U.K. Uh, auto industry, U.K. policy during that time was you know less pro innovation than the United States. They had um, some really weird laws that they had in the books for decades called red flag logs that, that hamstrung the early auto industry. Really? And by the time, you know, you know, um, the Luftwaffe was flying over the UK, I mean, the UK had a pretty robust auto industry, but we're certainly behind Germany and, and the US. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is an example of, you know, short-sighted policy, you know, after potentially harm, you know, potentially harming a technology and, you know, reducing options down the road or, or making a country more vulnerable. 
we're less safe. Um, so this is this is just one example. Like I think this this kind of example can apply to uh, many other emerging technologies that we're we're dealing with today. Um, yeah, but it it's it's an important lesson to remember that there are kind of second or third order ramifications in deciding how to embrace or push away. Uh, yeah. And what incentives do you in, embed in the policy response to emerging tech? Mike, that is a great point. And I really hope the policymakers in the U.S. hear that and, and take that to heart because that really is, um, it's really true and it's very profound. And uh, I think it's something, really something that the U.S. needs to adopt to remain the leader and remain competitive in this new space. Um but let's shift gears for a minute. I'd like to talk a little bit about fraud and just kind of what you're seeing there and uh, you know how this relates to IOSCO. So in terms of fraud from a from a you know centralized exchange perspective and decentralized exchange perspective, is there one you know just to, to start off, is there one that you see having more fraud than the other and is it you know would you call it statistically significant at all? Yeah, just, maybe I can just ex explain the the, um, the the layout of why um, combating market manipulation is important and, and how it is generally done kind of at a high level. Sure. Okay. So for in the in the U.S., for instance, it, the requirement to um, to combat to guard against market manipulation you know, comes from the Securities Act of 33 and 34, mostly 34, and also the Commodities Exchange Act of, of 36. So this is like, these things came in response to, um, you know, manipulative behavior, you know, bad, bad, bad stories that came out of the 1929 crash, right? So people were and, and in a situation like that, when there's a crisis, um, like these stories tend to get greater play and then there's a moment to like embed it in, in uh, legislation. Um, and then, so since the, the 30s, we've had, um, you, know, you know, decades of kind of aggregation policy guidance. And, and then also we have uh, a slew of self-regulatory organizations like FINRA and the NFA for, for commodities that have their own rules. Of, mm -hmm. of what firms to do. So, so in terms of like, so what is market manipulation? Like the, the ones that we hear about mostly insider dealing, insider trading. So when you have material non-public information you're trading against it to, to you know, have a gain or avoid a loss. Um, there are um, trading behaviors um, that people have employed that basically put out false orders into the market to trick people, trick, trick other participants. And then they, you know, the- Yeah, that's the, called spoofing, right? Yeah, exactly. So like you have GPS spoofing, you know, mm -hmm. where you basically pretend to be somewhere that you're not. And these are, yeah, this is, this is financial spoofing where you um, pretend to put out an order, but you never intend to mm -hmm. fulfill that order. Yeah, so just pull, to, pull, pull back that order. Right, drive yeah. the uh, price higher. Yep, so, yeah, so they're, in terms of um, you know, uh, market abuse laws in the United States and globally, so there are two layers. One layer number one is you can't do it; like it's illegal to 
try to fix prices or spoof. Mm -hmm. um, and then layer number two is that if you're a specific type of financial firm, you have to monitor your platform against it, right? So maybe you're a financial firm that ha employs traders. So you have to watch your traders to make sure they're not putting manipulative orders into the market. Uh, if you have clients, you got to make sure your client, you're not routing, you know, fraudulent orders into the market via your clients. Um, same thing for exchanges. If you're, um, yeah. So and, 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 yeah, and to be clear, you know, we don't only see this type of activity in crypto. We've seen it recently in commodities with big traditional firms doing it, as well as in uh, interest rates uh, and LIBOR, I believe, had a big issue with the, that. Um, so I'm sure your work isn't limited to only uh, crypto. I mean, your work as a firm, you know, I'm sure right. the traditional financial services keep you quite busy. Yeah, we, we our firm, Aventus, so we, we're a tech firm. So we build software that helps those financial firms detect uh, market manipulation and then do something about it. So basically, if you, you have the right systems in place, one, you get the license so you can actually do business. And then number two, you can detect fraudulent behavior and deter it and push it off your platform. Um, so we are global, we're across asset classes um, and mm -hmm. certainly do have a presence in, in crypto um, because it's an asset class that has heft. There, there's a lot of energy behind it. Mm -hmm. um, and firms, you know, new firms that entered the space, you know, some, some were enlightened, right? Some, some realized that regulation is coming. And even if it wasn't coming quickly, they needed to do the right thing now to protect their reputations, to protect their clients. Um, yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the, the way we think about it is, you know, the, the manipulative patterns, trading patterns that, you know, we've seen since the 1930s and have been, you know, part of U.S. laws since then. There are patterns that you can apply to crypto. Um, and, you know, it's, it's important to get that right. Yeah, that's really interesting. It, to me, it kind of reminds me of um, perhaps maybe the early, late 80s, early 90s, when you saw a lot of uh, penny stock trading going on. I think the movie The Wolf of Wall Street kind of depicts it. Uh, it definitely depicts it. Um, but yeah, I think you saw something very similar then to where penny stock firms were popping up, hitting the market, selling these penny stocks to retail investors um, at the, while having undisclosed positions in them and really offloading their position to the retail investor, right? It seems like there's a kind of a corollary between what happened then and what, what and sometimes happens now in crypto. Yeah, I mean, again, we're, we're a tech provider. We, we build the capability for firms to... Uh, kind of discover what's happening mm -hmm. under the remit and we can do it efficiently and, um, and accurately. Yeah. Um, but having the right tech is one piece of the, the puzzle. Like certainly the, having the right culture is very important. Um, mm -hmm. you know, mastering your data and being able to get, bring the right data to the platform. Um, and then uh, having the right talent. Uh, that is, is also um, an essential piece. People who, um, 
you know, be, pe people who, who know what to look for and have the experience to speak up and do something about it when they see something troubling on, on, in their company. Yeah, well, that's the that's actually a good point. I think crypto is so new to get someone experienced, you're, you're likely pulling them from another industry. So that might be kind of challenging for a while to have really experienced people in a lot of these roles. Um, but I'm sure they can fill if, uh, you know, if the opportunity is lucrative enough. Um, so uh, we'll see. Um, okay, but then back to the sex and the dex question. Are you seeing any type of divergence um, in fraud there between the two that you might be able to share? Yeah, we, our focus is on uh, centralized exchanges, uh, okay. just the way we do um, our technology is engineered. Mm -hmm. um, but one way to think about how, so one, one, one thing about com financial compliance is, um, is, is like, you, like a compliance officer will get an alert and they have to make a judgment call of what to do with the alert. And typically their systems are tuned in a way that more often than not, the alert is something maybe to investigate, but doesn't reach the threshold of, of, of fraudulent, right? And you kind of, and, and the, they do that because they don't want to miss anything, right? It's better to have, um, you know, a false positive and miss something, miss a, miss a true positive. Right. Um, of course, it's always a balance because if you have way too many false positives, then you just get inundated and you, you actually uh, can't yeah. do anything about the like, flood of alerts. So your um, software helps to kind of filter through those potential positives. Um, right. Okay. And help the that risk manager really do their job much more effectively. Exactly. Exactly. And, and one... One, one thing to, to note, and you're seeing this in, in crypto regulations, it's certainly the case in, in regulations and policy and other asset classes, is that the, the and this is a tough thing for, for compliance officers, this is, like, this is one reason why their job is so hard, is that the burden on getting this right is on the firm, it's on the compliance officer themselves. Like they certainly do need technology providers um, to, to empower them to fulfill their regulatory obligations. Um, but the rules are clear that, is that the responsibility falls upon them. And that's why it's such a, such a heady career, right? It's like, there's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, um, are they personally attached. responsible? In some cases, uh, the chief compliance officer is responsible. Uh, there, there, are, um, there are some incidents, there, there are some parts of uh, financial regulations in the United States where the, the CCO has to sign off and verify uh, certain aspects of their compliance mm -hmm. regime, um, and they could be legally responsible. Um, that those rules got tightened up um, in Dodd Frank after the global financial crisis. Yeah, yeah. Um, Aren't the uh, didn't Dodd Frank make the CEO and other C level uh, people personally responsible for certain issues? That was yeah. That was part of it. Okay. Among, among many other things, among yeah. and also uh, Dodd Frank made spoofing, you know that that manipulation we talked about, uh, criminally um, a criminal event, potentially criminal event, but jail time. There, there wow. was there was a, a case um, 
early last decade where uh, someone employed, it was a high frequency trader, employed an algorithm. The algorithm was designed, the jury found, to put out orders and then pull back the orders. And the jury found that to be spoofing and, and the trader uh, got jail time. Wow. That. So that that was an, an incident that really like shook the industry. It was a wake up call for the industry. We have some clients who kind of t- would tell the story. Um, and, you know, the idea that, um, you know, compliance professionals are not only protecting themselves, they're protecting the reputation of the firm, but they're also protecting their employees, right? Um, and you want to have the systems in place, the culture in place where you can get ahead of the risk and, you know, potentially save someone from, from criminal liability. And it was, a, it's a, you know, and they're retelling is it's a, it's a sad story. It was, you know, the guy had a family and yeah, um, it's certainly an emotional time um, for him. So that, that just, yeah, <laughs> re- <say> the least. <laughs> yeah, it's it just, you know, it's, it just reinforces that it's an important issue and it is personal and it is profound for the compliance officers who are involved and who have the responsibility to do something about it. Um, and this is something that we feel as a company, um, like we, our, our firm was built by former compliance officers, right? So people who sat in the hot seat themselves and who can empathize and really understand you know, what's at stake. And we are building the technology for that purpose. That's great. That's great. So for anyone watching, if you are having risk management issues or want to improve your risk management, please reach out to Mike at Aventis. Um, well, Mike, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate hearing your comments, uh, not only on IOSCO, but also on innovation and adoption. Um, really insightful. I really hope um, policymakers hear your message um, and change their tune on uh, how they view crypto adoption in the U.S. Um, yeah, we, covered, we covered a lot. Thanks for the great questions. Well, thank you. Um, all right. Well, thank you, everyone. And thank you for watching uh, this episode of the Tron Policy Report. <laughs>